now talking about his second missionary journey, and that's the portion which the book of Acts really does focus on. The book of Acts glosses over the first missionary journey. By and large, it's really brief, but it spends a lot of time on the second missionary journey, and I think that that's because Paul had a lot of feelings for these guys in Thessalonica. If you look uh, up there at the very top uh, left of your screen, Thessalonica there, uh, those... Those, uh, the unbelievers in Thessalonica were just, uh, they, they couldn't get rid of Paul fast enough. They started riots, and then when he went to Berea, they went down to Berea, and uh, they ended up uh, starting an insurrection there, and uh, so that brings us to Athens. So he comes down to Athens, Greece. So today we're going to talk about his excuse me, his brief uh, visit there in Athens. Now, he may have already written it. If you see down the bottom, uh, the epistle to the Galatians might have already been uh, written at this time. And we're going to focus today on Mars Hill. That's the Areopagus in Athens, Greece. We're going to learn all about that. Shortly after this, he's going to leave Athens. He's going to go to Corinth. He's going to write two letters back to the Thessalonians because he's very focused on those believers in Thessalonica because uh, I think because of all the persecution, just the, all that they were up against. So he really, uh, he really focused on those guys. But he did spend some quality time in Athens, and that's what we're going to get to today. Let me show you here in Acts. This is the, uh, just to preface what we're going to jump into from verse 13 to 14. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that Paul was also proclaiming the word of God in Berea, they went there themselves to incite and agitate the crowds. The brothers immediately sent Paul to the coast, but Silas and Timothy remained in Berea. So this is, this is what happened here. And then continuing, those who escorted Paul brought him to Athens and then returned with instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible. So Silas and Timothy were probably, uh, you know, spending some time with those Bereans, uh, maybe helping them to understand how to deal with the persecution from these Thessalonians that uh, keep coming down. And uh, then he said instructions, come and join me as soon as possible. So here's Paul in Athens alone. So he's totally alone in Athens. I find that really interesting. This is Athens, Greece we're talking about. This is Athens, Greece. This is the home of Pericles, Demosthenes, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, Sophocles, Euripides, all these guys. Athens was a famous, famous city for centuries before Paul got there. In fact, by the time Paul got there, Athens was really kind of past its golden age. It was no longer the political center of the world, but it was still the university center of the world. Right? It was the center of secular thought and thinking. And it's to this city that Paul went. All these famous men who have touched on all of Western history, really, uh, our civilization has been impacted greatly by these thinkers, you know, for good or for bad. And so here's Paul coming into the midst of all of this. I just think that that's, that's just interesting and, and fascinating how, how Paul deals with this. So today we're going to talk about his message in the Areopagus. So, what is the Areopagus? 
So you'll find if you read your Bible, it will probably translate it Areopagus. But if you have little headings above it, it might say something like Paul's message at Mars Hill or on Mars Hill or something like that. So you might be thinking, what does that mean? So the, the word, the English word Areopagus comes from the Greek roots, Arios, Pagos, which really kind of means Ares Hill. Ares is the Greek god of war. Now, by the time Paul was there, uh, the Greek empire had kind of fallen and it had been taken over by the Romans. The Roman god of war was named Mars. And so when they syncreted their gods and superimposed them and merged them with the Greek gods, Ares Hill, Arios Pagos, became Mars Hill. And they don't, they don't have a Greek word for that because Ares is a Greek god. And so, but you might find it referred to as Mars Hill. That's why. It's Areopagus is equal to Mars Hill. That's the Areopagus here. And so this is a map here of ancient Greece. The Areopagus is right in the center of the map. Now, if you look, you'll see... The Acropolis is to the right of the Areopagus. The Acropolis is a, a taller hill, and it has cliff-like sides. And so that's, that, the Acropolis is where the Parthenon is, and you can still see it today. Um, the Acropolis was the, the city's stronghold. That's why it had such sharp sides on, on the walls of that hill. The Areopagus is just kind of a mound of rock. And north of the Areopagus, you'll see an open area that says Agora, and it's surrounded by buildings. Now, there are also some buildings on the east side to the right, but they're not in this map. Um, I'm not sure why, but I just stole this map from the quickest and easiest source. So, so the Areopagus is a big open area surrounded by all these colonnaded buildings. And or the Agora was, I'm sorry. The Agora was this big open area surrounded by these columnated, columnated, however you say that, uh, buildings. And so uh, that's, the Agora was the open air. There, there was a market nearby, probably inside of some of the buildings and outside as well in the open area. This is where the, uh, the thought leaders would meet of the day. The Areopagus Hill finds its origin in um, mythology, so Ares, the god Ares, was said to be judged on that hill for some crime that he did. I think he killed Poseidon's somebody. I forget. Anyway, um, so the, the ancient tradition has a council meeting for judgment on the hill of Ares, on the Areopagus. And so that council took up the name Areopagus. So we have a council by the same name as the hill, Areopagus. And so the council, over time, grew larger and larger and did much more than just governmental uh, judgments and things like that. They came together for philosophical debates, and they came together for all kinds of purposes. And by the time of Paul, they no longer met on the Areopagus, on the hill of Mars or the hill of Ares. Instead, they met in some of those buildings that you'll see uh, to the north around the Agora, and so, <coughs> this is a photo of Mars Hill, of the Areopagus. You can see it today. It's just a giant rock. 
Now, this photo is taken from the, um, from the taller hill where the Parthenon stands, the Acropolis, and to the right, off the screen, to the right, this is a modern photo, and to the right off the screen, you would have the Agora. Now, in today, the Agora is completely ruined for the most part. It's, it's nothing but just ruined buildings uh, with a few of them standing. There's one or two still standing and pieces of others, and uh, there's one that's been reconstructed. So this is, this is the hill of the Areopagus, and that photo is taken from this hill, which is the Acropolis. You can see the ruins of the Parthenon on it. So the Areopagus is now in the foreground of this. So this is looking to the south uh, east. So that, that's, uh, and off the screen now to the left would be the ruins of where the Agora was, the big open area, area surrounded by these huge colonnaded uh, buildings. It was filled with statues in the middle, and that's where a lot of city life would take place. So here's an artist's reconstruction of maybe what it would have looked like back in its heyday. Um, so you can see in this, in this drawing the Acropolis Hill on the left side and the, the Parthenon, the roof of the Parthenon peeking out up there. The Parthenon was a temple to uh, Athena, and Athena was Ares' sister, or I guess half-sister. They had different mothers uh, in mythology, the Greek mythology. So you can see this big open area with beautiful buildings. Um, there was a lot. This is the center of, of all that was going on in the universe, you know, in the Western civilization for a long, long time. Now, several centuries before Paul, um, it stopped becoming, uh, it was stopped be- being the center of political life. But it was still, a lot of culture was there. So here's another uh, photo. This is actually called the Tower of Winds, this building here. And uh, this tower had a water clock in it that replaced the ancient water clock that was built uh, several centuries before uh, Christ was born. Uh, so in, this, in the Agora, which is the city center there, the, that big area, uh, they always had a water clock so they could measure not just the time of the day, but they could also measure the speakers. And so if a speaker was going uh, too long or if a speaker didn't have enough to say, they would say, well, you've only been speaking for 30 minutes. What, you know, what is this? And so they moved the water clock to this big tower of the winds, and uh, it's a water-powered mechanism. And on the sides, you'll see those diagonal lines. Those are lines marking where the sun and its shadows would cast uh, from the different peaks uh, of the building along the edges there, uh, marking different meridians and different um, solstices and things like that. That building still stands. This is the other side of it because this photo was taken from a parking lot. So, but like I say, most of the buildings in the Agora no longer stand. It's mostly ruins. There's that one uh, on the western side, there's that one uh, temple to Fastus uh, that still stands. You can see that. It's a pretty cool old building. So Paul would have seen these buildings with his eyes. And you can go there today and see the same buildings that he saw. I just find that really kind of interesting. Because Paul, indeed... This is just another thought I had when thinking about Paul this morning when we were breaking bread. Uh, Paul has a succinct thing that he says about breaking of bread in 1 Corinthians uh, 11. And it's, it's just a nice, succinct little statement. But it's interesting for me to think about. Paul himself wasn't there. He was, he was not there in the upper room. 
when Christ broke bread. I wonder if he wishes he were, you know. I don't know how old he would have been at the time. Uh, he was a young man later. He's referred to as a young man at the stoning of Stephen. So I don't know how young he would have been when Christ was breaking bread in the upper room. But uh, it's just interesting that he, he wrote so well about it, but yet he wasn't there. He only reported what he had received from the Lord to us. I find that really interesting. So let's go ahead and get into Acts chapter 17 and think about Paul here. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was deeply disturbed in his spirit to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews, God-fearing Gentiles, and in the marketplace with those he met each day. I'm thinking about Paul here. We don't know how long he was in Athens. I mean, I wonder what he did that first Sunday, all alone. You know, did he break bread by himself? Say a quick word of thanks. Say, Lord, I know you have people here in this city, people for yourself. Help me to go win them. I don't know. What, I wonder what his first Sunday was like. You know, it, was was he? You know, what was the the day he arrived? Was he in the synagogue first, or maybe he arrived uh, too late to go to the synagogue service? Perhaps I don't know. I just find that interesting to think about that, right? And so here's Paul. There, he was deeply disturbed in his spirit to see that the city was full of idols. So. Say that the city was full of idols, as I've done my research, is a dramatic understatement. It's a dramatic understatement. There was a historian that said that in Athens there were 30,000 gods. This historian wrote that in Athens it's easier to find a god than it is to find a man. And so here is Paul walking around, and he was deeply disturbed in his spirit deeply disturbed in his spirit to see that the city was full of idols. This is, the the word for deeply disturbed is the word from which we get English words like paroxysm. He had a paroxysm in his spirit. He looked around and was just flabbergasted. He was beside himself. He was just, his heart went, right? And so, this is, this is a good response. This is a positive response of, of Christians. And this is something that we've got to, as Christians, when we walk through the world and we see the idolatry of people around us, now, they don't necessarily worship Athena or Ares or any one of the other perhaps 30,000, if that historian is correct, gods. But people today worship just as much as they did, right? And it should disturb our spirit. We should our spirits so that we will be disturbed by the things that we see around us. So this is why we evangelize, because it's deeply disturbing to see people's lives wasted and unfulfilled because of their submission to the world order. So what did Paul do about it? He reasoned in the synagogue. Paul reasoned in the synagogue. Our message is reasonable. Paul reasoned. He didn't, you know, incite a riot. That's, that's what the unbelievers did in Thessalonica in response to a reasonable message, right? Since, since they can't win by reason, they would respond by rioting. But we don't 
respond in kind. Our message is reasonable, and evangelism is reasonable. And it's reasonable for us to use our reason and to help others come to an understanding of the way, Christianity. And so he reasoned in the synagogue, and he reasoned in the marketplace with those he met each day. So those in the synagogue, of course, would have been the Jews. And the Jews of the city would have been, you know, helpless to, how are they going to help those at Athens to uh, come out of their idolatry? They themselves were regarded as, as oddballs, really, the Jews were, Athens there. And so he reasoned with those in the marketplace that he met each day. So these would have been just ordinary, everyday idolaters, just lost in their idolatry, going about their business, you know, not knowing what to believe. And he reasoned with them. He, he brought a reasonable faith to them. So our message of salvation in Jesus Christ is reasonable. Evangelism is reasonable. And so that's what Paul did. And so we continue reading, and we read some Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. Okay, now wait a minute. We've got we to take a minute here and say, what in the world is that? What's an Epicurean? So the, the Epicureans were essentially atheists, right? They denied God of any sort. They denied any, anything that was uh, immaterial. They essentially were materialists. They denied any life after death. They felt that this life is the only thing that ever really exists. Therefore, men should get the most out of it could say their motto was eat, drink, and marry, because tomorrow we die. Eat, drink, and marry. Be merry. So <coughs> I guess you could call them you know, existentialists in today's parlance. And is this not a widespread philosophy today? So these Epicurean atheists, they're probably the ones that said, you know, some, it says, we read some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? I'm guessing that that was the Epicureans. What's this babbler trying to say about God? <laughs> we know we're superior, and we know there is no such thing. There is only this life. Better get the most out of it, right? So the, those, that, those are the Epicureans. But what about the Stoics? Oh, those guys. So the Stoics were a very different sort. They were kind of pantheistic. So they believed that everything is God and that he does not exist as a separate entity. There's no, he's not a person in the sense that we know of a God. We know that he is a person, a being. But to them, God is just in everything. Nature is God. You know, do we find this today? We totally do. And their whole attitude was... Essentially, um, they just prided themselves on their ability. Uh, they thought that the ultimate way to live is to just be completely unfazed by good or bad. Just take it all. Oh, look, somebody just got married. The most wonderful thing happened. Millions of dollars of inheritance. Oh, that's nice. Oh, look, somebody just got horrifically torn limb from limb. Oh, that's nice. I'm totally unfazed. How I can... Live with myself, right? So that, those were the Stoic 
philosophers. So I'm guessing that it was the Stoics who said he seems to be advocating foreign gods. So they're saying, what is this babbler trying to say? Others said, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. And they said this because Paul was proclaiming the good news of Jesus and the resurrection. Good news. But it's quite foreign to their worldview. So Paul had to start a little earlier. And this is where something wonderful happened. They took Paul and brought him to the Areopagus. Now, when it says they brought him to the Areopagus, you got to kind of focus in on that word. What does that mean? Does that mean the council or the hill? So later we read that Paul stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus. And so I believe that they brought him to the council and that the council was held at this time very likely in the Agora that is north of the actual hill. So I don't personally believe... now. You know, you can really kind of go either way. You could say, well, says they brought him to the Areopagus, you know, and he stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus on the Areopagus. I mean, that, that might be, but uh, we do know that the Areopagus Council uh, no longer met on the Areopagus Hill at that time. So I think that you can make a decent case for the fact that he was probably in the Agora there, surrounded by these columnated buildings and porches, They're, you know, huge tall columns and you know, lots of people around there. The council would have had, you know, probably one of those kind of lecture halls. You know, they had, that's, this is basically where the philosophers would lecture their students or their disciples. And so they would have given Paul the floor and they said, come, teach us. So they took Paul and brought him to the Areopagus where they asked him, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? For you are bringing some strange notions to our ears, and we want to know what they mean. Now, this is a wonderful thing. They're asking. They are asking to be evangelized. This is a wonderful thing. Paul had stirred curiosity in them, and they wanted to give him a legit time. They weren't. Now, think, contrast these guys to the Thessalonians. The Thessalonians hated his absolute guts out. They would have assassinated him Instantly, if they had the power. Just think about that. These Thessalonians chased him out of Thessalonica, and they heard, oh, he's down in Berea? You want to bet? And so they incited riots down there. So contrast this to the Athenians. Now, these idol philosophers and, and idol worshipers, they said, hey, that's some strange stuff. Let's check you out. Maybe you got something interesting. Now, we do have an explanation at the bottom here. Verse 21, now all the Athenians and foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing more than hearing and articulating new ideas. Nice, huh? And so does that sound like today's culture? It does ring true to some extent. And so I think as Christians, it's a really wonderful thing to do to try to get your foot in the door. Keep presenting bits and pieces of the gospel until someone asks you for the hope that's within you. You might only be able to show bits and pieces of, of the glimmer of hope that you have that others don't have. You know, I tell you, when 2020 hit, a lot of people found they needed hope. So show others your hope so that they might ask you, why, do you, why would you even have hope? 
Clearly hopeless, right? Just like those philosophers of the time. Oh, eat, drink, be merry, because you're going to die, and this is all there is, right? Without hope. And so, go that hope. If you have somebody ask you, this is the greatest opening, right? May we know. They, they brought him to the area of Come here, come here. No, no, we've got this group here. This, this huge council here. Stand, take the floor. We'll observe what time the water clock is showing. Maybe you can go for a couple of hours, right? And so what follows is a wonderful, wonderful message. And so he had before him, let's, let's think about the people that were surrounding him at this council. We have the religious oddballs, the Jews, right? They would have been remote from life and powerless to affect it. We have the thoughtless idolaters, sunken in superstition, living lives of quiet desperation. We have these same categories of people today, is my point. We have the atheistic existentialists who are priding themselves upon the rejection of all supernatural things and living for the moment. And then we have the self-sufficient fatalists who took pride in their ability to handle whatever comes and not show too much emotion. So we have all kinds of people there. And this is the way, this is today, this message for Athens is a message for today, for Western civilization, really for all civilization. And so Paul had such a wide variety who would have been present there in the Agora. And so picture, if you will, the area. This is one of the restored buildings. This is the Stoa of um, Atticus. I think this is the Stoa of Atticus. And this is actually restored. Um, before the restoration, there is nothing but most of the foundation and the far end. Now, I don't have a photo of the far end uh, of the wall, but actually the far end is still uh, some original, the, the exterior wall and I think some of the bases of some of the columns on that far end. But they restored it in the 1950s and 60s with American money, actually. And it's a beautiful... Picture, we've got the Doric columns on the outside and the Ionic columns on the inside. It's just, just picture Paul in a place like that. This is where he would have been, surrounded by who knows how many people. It was a big open area. Now, today you can see through the columns, actually, there's uh, trees there. But it would have been a big open paved spot. There wouldn't have been trees, trees there. So Paul would have stood in a place like this. And we read about it. Then Paul stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus. And he said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. Now look at what he did here. I just I, we, have to, we have to look at this. Paul started out right away with something that they would have perceived as a compliment. Now the word he used for religious is actually the root of that is where we get our root for our modern English word demon. But they didn't, it didn't have those connotations back then. It didn't have any bad connotations, although it does to us Christians today. But he, he basically gave them what would be perceived as kind of a compliment. You guys, I can see, you are very religious. And I think this is just worth noting. You know, as if, if you get invited, if you get asked for the hope that is within you, Start by saying something positive to the person. I perceive that you are 
an inquisitive and intelligent person, maybe a sensitive individual, right? You could respond in kind by giving them an observation that's complementary to the fact that they're asking you, right? And so uh, I think this is just a great way to perceive. So I had to pause there in Acts 17.22. All right, so continuing. Men of Athens, I see you in every way are very religious. For as I walked around and examined your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Now, I have to uh, pause here and talk to you about the unknown God. So, the altar to the unknown God. This is kind of a funny thing. There were actually lots of altars to unknown gods all throughout the region, at least the region of Attica. Um, the So, here's what happened. Many centuries before Paul was there, many centuries before Christ was born, uh, they had a plague go through the region, and so they made all the usual sacrifices to all their different gods and all the different altars, and the plague wasn't cured. So they figured, they, they were always very sensitive there in, in Athens and the region, and so they, they thought, well, there must be some other god that we just don't know about that, that uh, we, we, we need to make an offering to. Oh, well, how can we do this? And so they came upon this brilliant idea. So they let loose a huge flock of sheep. And the sheep just wandered around. And here's, they, they had instructions for everyone to follow them. And here's the assumption that if the sheep just stopped walking and lie down, it must be because that's holy ground. So they sacrificed it on the spot and built an altar to the unknown God that they were sacrificing that sheep to. And so there were a bunch of altars to unknown gods all throughout the region, so it wasn't actually an uncommon thing. So, I don't know if they uh, cured the plague. We don't. History has not told us uh, how rapidly this unknown god uh, accepted their sacrifices, but the remains were a number of altars to an unknown god. And so, I think today we only have one, or at least I, I know we have at least one that says to an unknown god or goddess, and uh, it was. It's in some museum. I forget uh, where it is, but you can actually see it. I think it's like, I want to say it might be in a British museum. Anyway, so he says, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. And so Paul jumps in here. Therefore, what you worship is something unknown. I now proclaim to you. I now proclaim to you. And this is what he says. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. He starts literally at the beginning. That's a very good place to start. He starts at the very beginning. I think that that's a wonderful, wonderful place to start. And so he starts at the beginning of creation. Uh, Much more could be said about the importance of Genesis and so forth and so on. Pretend I said all that stuff and we'll continue. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples made by human hands. Now get this. This is not metaphysically complicated. Nor is he served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined their appointed times 
in the boundaries of their lands. Is this not a great, succinct set of truths? I really particularly like uh, the last one there. He determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their lands. God himself is in charge of kingdoms. He was in charge of Athens. He was in charge of Sparta and all those other ancient city-states. God wasn't caught by surprise when Russia invaded Ukraine. God's not up there scrambling and saying, oh, no, what, what are we going to do about this? Hold on, wait a minute, right? He's the one who appoints these boundaries and appoints their times. So I think that's a great, you know, God is totally in control. God is not aloof. He is not distant like culture and society wants to say. Western civilization is now saturated with pieces of Christianity, but that's what they do is they take it and they twist it. Oh, yeah, yeah, there, there, there may be a God, but he's far away. God is watching us from a distance, I think was that Midler's song. So much more can be said. Let's continue. God intended that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. This touches on, on the the doctrine of omnipresence. And I find that to be a super comforting thought. Do you? God is with us right here. His omnipresence, the doctrine of God's omnipresence means he is closer to you all than I am. He is close enough to touch, right? He's right there. He's right here. He is with us. With us intimately. So he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. These are a couple of quotes from uh, Athenian poets. Therefore, being offspring of God, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by man's skill and imagination. But he's bringing out the truth that man is made in the image of God. Man is made in the image of God. And this is something I think that's lost in today's modern culture as well. Because we have the Epicureans among us who have invaded our universities. And they have taught us that we're just meat and bones. We're just machines. There's nothing more. When we break down, there's nothing more. Right? This is what they teach us. This is our culture today. But Christianity teaches a dramatically and presents a dramatically different view. And I think that history bears it out. History bears out the truth that we're made in the image of God. So think to yourself, why did explorers explore the Antarctic? Or the Arctic, actually, for that matter, right? Why do we have, why do people go places where it's hard to do things? Why? Why would they do that? That's just stupid, isn't it? Why would they do that? Because we're made in the image of God. We're, we instinctively, we have built into us the desire to know and to understand and to have dominion over things, right? When uh, Sir Edmund Hillary was asked, you know, why in the world did you climb Mount Everest? And his answer was, because it was there. That's a stupid answer. But it's not actually a stupid answer. It's because he was made in the image of God. This is something that we as Christians have lost, and I really wanted to, to just, this is uh, just a little thing of mine, because we've got to retain, why do people blast themselves off with 
thousands of tons of explosives underneath. Because we're made in the image of God. We, we want to do incredible things. We're made for incredible things. And, in fact, when the curse is removed in the new heavens and the new earth without curse are created for us to inhabit, we'll be doing some incredible things, let me tell you. I mean, you might spend a couple of million years sitting around on a cloud with a harp if you really want to, but I think you'll be doing a lot more than that. We'll be doing incredible things. Why do people do that? Because we're, we're made in the image of God. We naturally try to go places where it's really hard for humans to survive without dying, you know? And even closer to home, you know, why do we mow our lawns? Why do we do this kind of thing? Because we are made in the image of God. We want to subdue our lawn. We want to make it look the way we want it to look, not the way nature and the cursed earth wants it to look, right? So we're, we construct awesome things, and we're made in the image of God. All right, so going back, although God <coughs> overlooked the ignorance of earlier times, he now commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. This is a succinct. Now, many commentators believe that Paul's message was actually lengthy, and we only have a summary of it here in the book of Acts, that Paul gave Luke, either Paul himself summarized his message to Luke, or Paul gave him all the gory details, and Luke said, okay, I'm not going to remember that, but this is what I do remember. We, we don't know. But many commentators believe that Paul's message went into much more depth and detail, but this is a very beautiful and succinct message if he didn't, right? Isn't it? God overlooked the ignorance of earlier times. He now commands all people everywhere to repent. So a, an evangelistic message must agree with the Holy, the, the Holy Spirit's work. And the Holy Spirit's work in the heart of an unbeliever is to convict of three things. Then, righteousness and judgment. And so, it's always a good thing to agree with the Holy Spirit and to, you, would, you would want to cover those types of topics, and which Paul really did right here. And so, the judge is already appointed. There's going to be a judgment. But, God stands with open arms, with forgiveness already paid for, ready. Take it, right? And so Paul holds this out, and he claims as proof that Jesus rose from the dead. This is definitely the proof of Christianity. This is the one thing on which Christianity could fall. If you want to you disprove Christianity, if there's any atheist who can hear this message, there's an easy way to just... Disprove all of Christianity. Find the body. Well, you can't. It's in heaven now. People have looked and looked and looked, but you can't find a body. There's no body. So Christianity rises and falls on the resurrection. And unfortunately, that's where they put him to a stop. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some began to mock him. Of course, mockery, we know, is usually the defense of the mentally defeated, but <coughs> some began to mock him, and others said, we want, to, we want to hear you again on this topic. At that, Paul left the Areopagus, but some joined him and believed, including Dionysus the Areopagite, Dionysius, a woman named Damaris, 
and others who were with them. So the resurrection uh, was a sticking point. And he said, ah, that's just, you know, some of them mocked him. That was probably the Epicureans. Ha, resurrection. There's nothing more to the body but just skin and bones anyway, right? There's nothing more to life. Life ends when you die. That's it. The same mockery happens today. So I want to point out that we as Christians, we've got to share Christ with those around us. And as we do, we're going to get different results, aren't we? We're going to get different results. Some people are going to mock us. I've been mocked. Some people are going to say, well, we want to hear you again. Interesting. Yeah, let's, I'll give you another shot. You know, let's see, see what happens. I've had other shots. You know, I don't know if my work with some have, has ever you know, paid off. You don't, you don't know. You don't know how the Lord uses your opportunities. I don't know. But we have to be faithful. And some believe. Some believe. Right? And so we have two people we know. It says some joined him and believed, including. So it was probably more than these two. Uh, but we know only the names of these two. Dionysius, the Areopagite. So he was a member of the Areopagus Council. And a woman named Damaris. This is uh, our mosaic of Dionysius. Um, I don't know if he really looked that. He looks kind of sad there, doesn't he? That is a sad-looking dude. Well, tradition says that he was uh, martyred by one of the Roman emperors. So, And then the other one was Damaris of Athens. We don't know anything about Damaris of Athens. There's no, she's just lost to history. You know what? a believer in Jesus Christ, you're going to meet her one day. You're going to meet her in heaven. Who are you? Damaris of Athens. What? No kidding. That's cool, right? So, that's the, that's the result. So the results are going to be varied. The results are always going to be varied. Broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many people, it seems that most people seem to choose that path. So, but we still have to be faithful in sharing the gospel wherever we can. We've got to be faithful. The world is dying. People living out their lives in just absolute desperation. You know, no hope at all. They need the hope of the gospel. There's only hope in Jesus Christ. And with Jesus Christ, we have tremendous hope. And when you share the gospel, you do so with the power of the Holy Spirit. This is another thing I mentioned to the youth. I might have uh, taken a few small brief moments, but did you know that the power of the Holy Spirit is with you when you're sharing the gospel? Think about it as humanly speaking, humanistically speaking even, there's, but what can I do? If I'm sharing the gospel with somebody, what in the world am I going to do to touch their heart? There's nothing I can do to touch someone's heart of solid stone. Nothing I could possibly do. But we know that the Holy Spirit convicts of sin righteousness and judgment. The Holy Spirit touches the heart. And this is a great encouragement to us as believers. You're not alone. You're not sharing the gospel. Paul was there totally alone in Athens, but he was not really alone. The Lord was right with him, touching the hearts that he was speaking to. And this is our encouragement. When we share the gospel, the Holy Spirit is right there. He's with you, and he's also in their hearts where you can never reach, right? And he helps your words to reach. And it's also an encouragement to us uh, as Christians when we, we want to encourage one another. You know, think about 
you know, somebody who's despondent, but they're saved and they need encouragement. Oh, what in the world are you going to, as a human, you know, I can rub your back. Is that going to help your heart? No, right? But the Holy Spirit helps there. The Holy Spirit helps our ministry to go to their heart, right? And the Holy Spirit, in fact, we read that he intercedes for us with groans that cannot be uttered, you know? So when we pray to God, we say, you know, dear God, uh, uh, I, I don't, I, I, I don't, I don't know, I don't know. I'm so glad that God's, God's not up there. He's like, oh, you got to say the words. You got to say the, oh, you didn't say the words. Sorry, I'm tied. My hands are tied. Sorry. That's not that kind of a God. But instead, we read that the Holy Spirit intercedes. We don't know how to pray as we ought, but the Holy Spirit intercedes for us with groans that cannot be uttered. So you're sitting there saying, oh, I don't know, God, I, I, I don't know. And the Holy Spirit's up there with God. And he says, Here, here's what he means. He means that. So I was like, yeah, I know. I'm, I'm sending help right now, you know. So anyway, I, I, uh, I digress. You can go to Athens today and you can uh, see the same buildings that Paul saw. They're really interesting. Um, I think that would be just interesting to do. But the message that he spoke was truly, truly an eternal message of hope. And it's just as relevant today as it was back then. So just want to leave you with that bit of encouragement. And I've sucked down all my time. And I will take my seat. And thank you for your patience. Let's look to the Lord in a brief word of prayer. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much for your love. Lord, we thank you for sending your son to Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for the example of Paul who lived a life just sold out, absolutely sold out out to you. Lord, we pray that you would encourage us to do the same. Us to follow that example and to be an impact on the world around us for Christ and your glory. In the name of your Son, we ask this. Amen.